You're listening to El Fanboy number 57, a special tribute to Superman. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 57th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. And this is a very special one for me because this week Superman turned 80. My favorite character of all time celebrated his 80th anniversary, and I figured what better way to, to honor him than to dedicate an entire episode of uh, just talking about him, what he's meant to me the different projects that involve Superman that have sparked my imagination, where I'd love to sort of, you know, what I've loved about him leading up to now and kind of where I'd love to see him go. Um, And, you know, a big part of that is going to be discussing, you know, my history as a Superman fan to understand why he runs so deep inside me, why it's such an important part of who I am and my identity uh, Superman is. Um, but also, I should mention that you know, total like left turn at the end of this con- episode, I'm going to be concluding things with a long form interview with a filmmaker who I've already discussed a couple of times on this show and on the uh, Revengers podcast. His name is Nigel Bach. He's someone who just inspired the fuck out of me. Uh, He made a trilogy of films that are on Amazon Prime. And I think you're going to, especially if you're an aspiring filmmaker, what he's got to say is going to kind of rock your world, I think. We had a very good conversation, so I'll be wrapping up with that. But up until then, it's going to be all Superman all the time. So let's go ahead and hit the ground running here. Um... So let's kind of do, this is going to be sort of in the vein of those like Marvel memories I've been doing on recent episodes where I kind of go like kind of step by step of how how I've felt about the Marvel movies as we've gone. This is going to be sort of like that, but for Superman and for basically 30 years worth of history. Um, Because here's the thing, Superman has been such a part of my life pretty much from the beginning. Like my for as long as I can remember, Superman has been the epitome of of everything for me in terms of a fictional character to follow, a hero to idolize, toys to play with, books to collect, video games to play. Like he is my end all be all, and I think it's important to you know for me to convey that to you guys because, uh, or should I say, to y'all since I'm going to apparently continue acting like I'm somewhat Southern for some reason. Um, Yeah. So I want you guys to understand that because, you know, when I, when I critique any of his portrayals, when I, when I go after anything negative about Superman, you know, it doesn't come from a place of, you know, meh, Superman's lame, or it doesn't come from a place of like, 
oh, this didn't adhere to one very specific version of Superman that I'm into. Like, no, I've loved all kinds of variations of the Superman mythology and the different takes on him over the years. So when I when I have a, a fundamental issue with the way he's portrayed or written or performed, it really comes from more just... You know, I feel like this character is a very close and dear friend of mine. And I just, you know, something that this portrayal has done is just not resonating with me. And it no longer feels like the Superman that I know and love, which is fine. You know, it's, you know, we'll get to that. But, you know, it's fine. It is what it is. But I think you need to understand where my fandom comes from. So, you know, like I said, from as as far back as I can remember, Superman has been the end-all, be-all for me. And similar to Star Wars, it actually began with action figures. Because, you see, growing up, I didn't have anyone to play with. You know, I didn't have any brothers or sisters. I still don't. I never did. I was an only child. I didn't have, like, neighbor's kids who I would go hang out with during the day or, you know, visit on weekends or have play dates with. That wasn't a thing. I didn't have cousins who were like my age. And the ones I did, like Brandon, who writes for Revenge of the Fans, you know, they lived in Puerto Rico at the time. So I had no contemporaries and my parents and my mother, you know, they weren't like the arranging play dates with your classmates type of parents. So really, up until I was 14, the, the, the vast majority of my life was going to school and then coming home and going alone into my room and retreating into a world of pure imagination. And that was through action figures. That was through play sets that I would do. I would, I would even film little stop motion movies and videos. I was all about getting trapped inside my own head, using my imagination as my gateway out of what was really a very sort of lonely existence. And that really began right from the outset. You know, when I was like three or four and having my, you know, creating my first memories as a young man, you know, as a young child, I should say, it was about the action figures in my hands. And you know what one of the first action figures I can picture holding was? Superman. There was a Superman doll that was very popular in the 80s, and I've actually tried to find it on eBay, and it still exists, and I may buy myself one because I'm a nostalgic idiot. But there was this Superman doll that if you squeezed his legs, his arms would punch. I don't know if you guys have ever played this or if anyone knows what that is or if I'm dating myself. But there was a Superman doll where you squeeze his legs and his arms would punch and he had like a detachable red cape that had the little yellow S on the back. And I would play with my Superman toys all the time. It was him versus He-Man and Skeletor and G.I. Joe. Those were like my main toys growing up. And it's funny. If you looked in my toy bin there as I got a little older, it looked like a Superman graveyard because you would find decapitated Superman heads and broken off legs and just a torso or just an arm or just some legs because, you know, when I was three or four, you know, in my mind, Superman flies. So what do you do? You throw the toy. So I used to throw my Superman dolls across the room because, you know, he flies. And, of course, they would break and smash. So over the years, I was probably given, like, dozens of Superman action figures. And they'd almost always end up broken. And I'm sad because to this day, I don't have that original Superman doll. I have pieces of him lying around. And maybe I could try to Frankenstein him back into creation. But, yeah, I, I don't have that doll anymore. But I used to play with it all the time. 
So my earliest Superman memories came with you know, playing around my action figures and, 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 and occasionally seeing things like the Max Fleischer cartoons and reruns of the Super Friends. And that's how I knew that he could fly. And that's how I knew generally what he stood for. But mainly it was me creating my own Superman stories that got me really into the character and this being with superhuman powers who could fly and save the day and how cool that was. And then, you know, something crazy happened. In 1987, when I was four years old, my, you know, I've told this story before, but I'll try to, you know, abbreviate it here. You know, my mom took me to go see Superman for the quest for peace at the Elmwood Theater here in Elmhurst, Queens. And something happened for me there because, you know, from that experience came my love of movies and my love of Superman to a whole new degree. So, you know, technically the first movie I saw in theaters was Flashdance. My mom took me into that when I was like an infant, apparently. So obviously I don't remember it. But the first movie I can tell you right now with certainty that I can remember sitting in a theater and watching and going through the whole magical journey of what it is to watch a movie the first movie was Superman 4. So I remember sitting there, and this was the first time I'd gotten to see Superman on the big screen. Up until then, I'd caught glimpses of Superman's uh, 1, 2, and 3 on TV, but I never really like sat down to watch it because I was like young and I didn't really have the attention span, so I mainly played with my toys, right? So this was my first time where I sat there and watched a Superman story on the big screen in a room filled with other people from start to finish. And I'll never forget this moment there where they're fighting on the moon and Nuclear Man starts pounding Superman into the dirt and he basically buries him. Remember that very sort of awkwardly staged thing where he like hits him like a spike into the ground and just buries him and then with his foot, he throws the dirt over his head. I remember vividly to this day crying my eyes out in theaters and my mom having to put her arm around me why? Because even at that age, I already had an understanding that to be buried is to be dead. And remember, this is, you know, I'm a little kid. I didn't know that there would be a happy ending. I didn't know that he would come back. All I know is this evil man with his long nails who scratched him and practically took away his powers. I mean, nuclear man's a total disaster, you know, in hindsight. But at the time, at four, he was a nightmare. So when he pounds Superman into the moon and then throws the dirt over his head, I start bawling and I say to mom, Superman's dead. He killed Superman. And my mom is like hugging me and she's like, no, no, Mario, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And there were people like sitting in front of us looking back, like looking at me having this emotional outburst, probably looking at my mom like, you know, are you going to like let him know that, you know. He's going to come back. This is going to end well. But, you know, so people were looking. I, I'll never forget that. And then I remember that moment, that moment where he punches himself out of the dirt and he walks towards the American flag while dusting himself off and he stands it back up. And you hear a little bit of that, like, bah, 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 bah. and then he flies away like I that moment for me taught me the magic of movies and the magic of Superman. All of the emotions I went through there, like that was my foundational memory. Like, you know, if you've ever seen the Pixar movie Inside Out, where they talk about core memories, the core memories that become the fundamental 
columns, the pillars that hold you up, they, they become who you are. For me, that was that that's a huge one right there. Because that's where I realized how amazing and magical and mythical a movie is and how it can make you transcend time and space and take you someplace that fully envelops and absorbs you. And it's also where the magic of Superman, this hero who can come to save the day, got heightened to unforeseen, unheard of levels. Because you got to understand, for a four-year-old, Christopher Reeve was Superman. He was the action figure come to life. Picture that costume he had. Picture the jawline and the broad chest and the hair and the eyes. He was Superman. There was no, like, you know, nowadays we're always used to, like, the costumes getting tweaked and, you know, oh, the movie's going to be a little different than what we're used to and the whatever. At that time, in the mid-80s, I could look directly at my punching Superman action figure and then over at the screen and see Christopher Reeve and be like, well, that is the same exact person. That, you know, so he was Superman. He captured my imagination and it was just, you know, right there, like a love affair with Kal-El and a love affair with movies began in that precise moment. Um, and I remember you know, my, my family always saw it and they, 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 they tried to nurture it as much as possible. You know, they treated Superman like he was this special thing in our home. You know, they would get me my Superman T-shirts with the S on the, uh, the the S emblem, which it's funny. Back then, that was like a novelty to see someone wearing a Superman shirt. You know, you had to go especially someplace and find it. Nowadays, you know, you can just rock up into any Target or Kohl's and there's an entire rack of 10 different styles of Superman shirt. But back then, it was like if you could find a Superman shirt and you could wear it out, you know, it felt special and cool and novel. And, when I, and I would wear my Superman shirt you know, it was, it was, it felt like I get to be him right now. And I would tie a towel around my neck and I'd get to be Superman running around the house. And, you know, there was always just this reverence around him in the, in the theaters. I mean, in, in my life from my family, they always nurtured that, you know, like I first, you know, like I said, my mom took me to see Superman four. And to this day, the two of us together are Superman nerds. And we've gone to see Superman Returns together in theaters. We went to go see Man of Steel together in theaters. She and I have a very special Superman bond. And she's always taken to that whole idea of, you know, my only son. She refers to me that all the time. Whenever she posts one of her like sappy, you know, mom posts on Facebook, it's always, here's my only son. And it's always about, you know, she's always referencing Marlon Brando's Jor-El and the way he would refer to Christopher Reeve Superman that way, my only son. And with my dad, you know, I, there's this other memory I have of, of the way Christopher Reeve and Superman transcended reality for me. Um, I must have been about five or six. My dad was a doorman at a building in Midtown Manhattan. And every once in a while, depending, you know, because my, my parents were divorced. And we would have weekend visitations, and sometimes he had to work for the first part of Saturday, leading up to four o'clock when his shift ended. So my mom would like drop me off at the building around noon, and for the first couple hours of our visit, I'd be sitting there with my dad, helping him open doors and greet tenants, and you know that I have some great memories about that. But specifically with Superman, I'll never forget there was this time where there must have been some sort of like charity sports event happening in Central Park. Something was going on in Central Park. Maybe it was even a concert. I don't know. But my dad was listening to the radio cast of that. And he let me know, like, Mario, you know, Christopher Reeve is going to be there. 
And mind you, this is already probably like 89 or 90. He had already played Superman for the final time, and there was no reason to think there would be a fifth Superman movie at this point. So he was practically done with the role, but when they brought him on the broadcast, it was, and yeah, we've got Superman himself, Christopher Reeve, here with us. And I remember my father and I huddling around the radio, and I'm beaming at the radio listening to him talk. I remember like my cheeks hurt because I'm hearing him, and he sounded like such a good, wholesome guy. And he probably did his usual, you know, the, the usual actor business when you're on a radio show, you know, probably promoting whatever show he was working on at that time. But I'm like, I'm listening to him. I'm listening to Superman right now. And what was cool was... At some point, they asked him to make like an announcement to the people there in the park. And we heard this on the radio where they were worried about spectators climbing up into the trees to get a better view of the game or of the concert or whatever the hell the event was. And Christopher said, yes, please, you know, we need you to come down from those trees. You know, I, I don't want to have to fly over there and get you down myself. And I, I'll never forget that. It's such a simple little gag. I'm sure he's, you know, obviously he said it with tongue in cheek and everyone else has kind of laughed it off. But to my little five or six year old mind, picturing Christopher Reeve, picturing him talking about saving over, to, you know, flying over to the tree to get them down, that just stuck with me. And it was one of the reasons that Reeve really transcended everything for me. He, when I picture Superman in my mind's eye, that's who I see. Um... And that's why, you know, it's, okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get some more of my Reeve memories in a second. But then now, if we're going like chronologically, you know, in 1992, when the death of Superman occurred in the comics, that signaled the first time in my life that I collected comics. Because my father got me for Christmas the collected works of the death of Superman. It was, you know, this one graphic novel that had all of the entire buildup and the battle and the ultimate death of Superman in it. And up to that point, I'd never read a comic book. All of my Superman stuff had been from the toys, from the movies, from the cartoons. So suddenly... I, my dad got me into it because he knew what a diehard fan I was. So he got me that book. And then from there, I started collecting Superman every single week for the next like two years. And that's where I suddenly developed a love of Superman in literary form. That's when it began with the death of Superman comics. And also as part of his sudden resurgence in popularity, because remember that death of Superman thing was huge. It was on the news. It was on primetime news. That's what a big deal it was when DC decided to kill him off. I'll never forget watching like Channel 11, WPIX, the news at 10. And they're like, oh, and in startling news, Superman has been killed. Yes, DC comic has decided whatever. I remember just sitting there going like, this is crazy. They're talking about Superman dying on the news. So suddenly he was really popular again. And they announced Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman on ABC. And at this point, I'm, you know, 10. And this became the first bit ever of Destination TV for me. I Up until that point, you know, I would watch TV when it was on or, you know, I had certain things like, you know, certain rituals, say, by the bell and, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I came home, you know, right after homework, I'd watch those. But this became something where, like, I knew that Sunday nights, no matter where I am or what's going on, I need to get to Channel 7 somehow, some way. I need to watch this. I cannot miss 
Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman, because that was finally giving me, you know, access to a character that I hadn't seen since 1987 in live action. You know, it had been six years at that point since I had gotten to see Superman flying around. So even though there probably wasn't the best version of it, you know, Dean Cain did a pretty good job. And I, when I think back on that show, I, I think back fairly fondly. But for me, it was like everything at the time, because this was finally giving me my fill of Superman. Now fast forward to 1995 and back to like the reverence and the importance of Superman and Christopher Reeve in my house. I will never forget that, you know, my dad, I only tended to see him on the weekends because that's when his visitations were. And every once in a while, he would show up for like a Wednesday visit. You know, the, he, legally speaking, he was allowed to see me on certain Wednesdays. So we would make that happen once in a while. But typically, I didn't see dad during the week. And I remember one day I came home from school and my dad came and I'm like, what's going on here? And he pulled me aside. He, he took time out of his day, out of his week, just so he could explain to me face to face in a safe and controlled environment that Christopher Reeve had had a, uh, a horse riding accident and he broke his neck and he'd probably never move or walk again. And I'm emotional now, but like, it's not even just because of Reed, but it's also like, I think back and like, I love that my dad knew how important this was to me. And he didn't want me to find out on the news. He knew I'd be crushed. And I just, I, I, anyway, so it was very important to me and my family knew it. And that was, you know, I felt that was a lot for me to deal with when I heard he got paralyzed. Um, but okay, so now fast forward the following year. And I'm at my grandfather's house. And my grandfather, by the way, who's named Francisco Robles, who I'm named after, and my other grandfather is Mario Peña. So I'm Mario Francisco Robles Peña. You know, Frank, as we call him, Abuelo Frank, he is the original film buff in my family. He's the reason that I analyze all this stuff to, in such degree, in such detail. And that he's the one who made it cool for me and normal for me to like go to a restaurant after a movie and let's analyze this movie inside and out, the direction, the cinematography, the score, that all comes from Frank. And Frank was a hardcore movie nerd and an actor. He's, a, he's still a theater actor. He just picked up an award two weeks ago for 50 years of theater acting in, in New York City. Um, and I bring all this up because at the time, he was a subscriber of Variety. It's funny, we all go to Variety.com now and that's how we get our news. But he actually had, you know, this is 1996, this is before the internet was really a thing. He had copies of Variety lying around and he had them there in the bathroom, you know, because who doesn't need some bathroom reading? And in 1996, I remember I'm doing my bathroom reading and I come across an article that says, Tim Burton is directing Superman Lives, and it's going to star Nicolas Cage, and this, this, and that, and it's going to it's going to tell the story of his death and return. And I remember, like, I you know, I ran out of the bathroom, and I'm like, there's going to be another Superman movie. And suddenly, like, this now began a phase of like, uh, where, where for ten years, I was closely watching and monitoring and and chronicling when I'm going to get to see Superman on the big screen again. And we don't need to get into all that, but you know, you know that it's been an insane ride. If you go back and look at the documentary by John Schnepp, you know, what happened, the, uh, 
the death of Superman lives. You know, they go into a lot of the history there, and I've written about it ad nauseum elsewhere. But, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of being a Superman fan in the late 90s and at the turn of the century, you know, it was not an easy time because they're kept on, you know, projects kept popping up and then disappearing and then popping up and then disappearing. And yeah, there were so many stops and starts. And by the time Superman Returns came out, it was like, I was going to love this thing no matter what, just because it finally happened. But before we get to that, which was in 2006, uh, I should touch on, you know, in 2004, you know, it was, it was an unbelievable time to be me and to love Superman because I had fallen in love with X2, X-Men United. I was never an X-Men fan. And I saw that movie three times in theaters. Just to put that into perspective for you, I didn't even see the first X-Men movie in 2000. I didn't even see that one in theaters. I saw it like on VHS after the fact at my girlfriend's house just for the hell of it. X2 was such a revelation for me that I saw it three times. And to this day, I have very warm, very fond memories of that movie. So in June of 2004, when it was suddenly announced that Brett Ratner had left or Mick G had left and suddenly they had scrapped whatever version of Superman was about to get done, which was going to have at the time Anthony Hopkins as Jor-El and all this stuff, that that had gotten thrown out and that Brian Singer the director of X2 and his writers from X2 were going to make the next Superman movie and that it was going to be a continuation of the Christopher Reeve continuity, my head fell off. That was like, are you kidding me? I get, after all this wait, I get to have a Superman movie that actually continues the legacy of the Reeve movies, and it's going to have the da, 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 da. Like, you got to understand, that music for me, back when Napster was first invented in like 1997, 1998, remember Napster? I'm really dating myself. But the first song I downloaded on Napster, which probably took like 17 hours to download back then on uh, dial-up, it was the John Williams. Superman theme. That's where my mind and my heart took me to download the Superman theme. So just knowing that I was going to get a proper Superman movie that would have that music in it, that would continue that continuity, and it was being made by the same people that made X2, a movie that to me at that point in time was like one of the biggest and best superhero cinematic experiences I had ever had. I mean, I you could not have brought me down from the cloud I was on. And from there began a whole new phase of my fandom and of my life. Because then, chronicling specifically the, the, the production of that film gave birth to everything you guys hear me and see me do for Revenge of the Fans and for Latino Review and when I was on my own there. It all was born in 2004 when Superman Returns was announced. Because then I started going to this website called bluetights.net. BlueTights.net had a relationship with Brian Singer where he would release these video blogs from the website, from the, from the production of the film to the websites. So you can get these exclusive looks at how he was getting putting the movie together down in Australia. And there was this forum there where I, I would post as Super Mario 
and funny little bit of trivia, that's where I first encountered uh, Twitter user uh, Claudia Balboa, uh, aka Stargazer. You know, she used to post as Stargazer there. And uh, years and years later is when I found her on Twitter, and she didn't even remember me. Claudia, I'm sure you're listening. It's no hard feelings you don't remember me. (laughs) But, you know, I used to post there all the time, and I remember Stargazer's post, and I remember that whole community and being part of the anticipation and the buildup of that movie. And every time Brian would release a new blog, there would be a whole new topic about it, and we would, you know, just hyper analyze and dissect every single thing about it. And that's where really, you know, when it comes to Superman Returns, that is where the modern sort of geek in me was born. That's where everything that's come since was born. Um, And then, of course, uh, a few months later, you know, that was announced in June. In 2004, um, uh, Christopher Reeve passed away. And I'll never forget that either, because that's another one where it's like, you know, it was it, it felt like a real life loss, even though I never met Mr. Reeve and it had been so long since I had seen him really, you know, he hadn't played Superman since 1987. And, you know, I my, my connection to him was somewhat limited at that point. But I remember waking up uh, to a phone call from my mother. Uh, at this point, I was already I, I had moved out. I was living with my dad. And I get this phone call and she told it to me. I mean, she broke the news to me as if one of our relatives had passed. Like that's how serious she knew this was. And that's how serious it really was for me. She said, you know, Mario, uh, Christopher Reeve has, you know, passed away. And I don't remember what I said to her. All I remember is like I said something and I hung up very quickly And there in my room, even though I was like 21 at the time, you know, since action figures were always such a huge part of my life, even though I hadn't played with them at at that point in probably close to 10 years, I still had action figures set up around my room, like in certain poses. I'm a nerd. Uh, And next to my bed there on the nightstand was a Superman action figure. And when I hung up with my mom... I looked at the Superman action figure and I like symbolically, just instinctually too, I wasn't trying, there was no one in the room, I, was, I wasn't trying to like perform this for anyone. But my heart just told me, you know, lay the toy down to rest. So when, when Christopher passed and I hung up the phone, I remember vividly this memory I have of reaching forward and laying the doll down and ha- having to lay there in bed just sort of mourning this loss that he was gone and this, you know, this beautiful human being and the epitome of the ideals of Superman that I, that really spoke to me, uh, was no longer with us. I'll never forget that loss or the fact that, you know, my mother had to call me to make sure that she told me in a carefully controlled manner because she knew what it would do to me. Um, so that's why when Superman Returns came out, despite all its flaws, it was one of the most beautiful things in the world for me. And to this day, I have pretty much nothing but warm, sentimental feelings about that movie because it gave me a continuation of the Superman that I, that I, I, I grew up on and that I loved and that I could relate to. And it was clear to me that Brian Singer was the same strain of Superman fan that I was. 
Because listen, there's different types of Superman fans out there. People love him for very different reasons. You know, some people love him because of all the things he can do, all his powers and how cool it is when he flies and picks up cars and fights other fellow demigods and all that sort of stuff. For me, what I always loved about Superman, what I always resonated to was the idea of the lonely protector. The person who's going through, you know, who has his own challenges and obstacles and feels isolated and feels like he's not, he doesn't necessarily belong, but who still does the right thing anyway. Because like to paraphrase Christopher Reeve, uh, you know, it takes courage to be a good guy, to have that kind of power at your fingertips and decide to use it for good when really it would be so simple for you to just rule the world now because who can stop you? Yeah, that's the easy thing to do. The easy thing to do is to use your power to bully others and to use the fact that you have an infinite advantage over others to your, to your own advantage. Um, there's something beautiful and amazing about someone coming from that hardship and being an orphan and not feeling like you're of this earth to then decide, I'm going to dedicate my life to inspiring others, doing the right thing, and 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 just saving lives. That's always what spoke to me. Superman saved people. He didn't necessarily kill bad guys for me like that. I mean, and he did, but like that wasn't what spoke to me. It wasn't about him beating up bad guys. It wasn't about him killing anybody. It was about him saving people. That, that's always what spoke to me about the character. That's why like in Superman, the movie, it never phased me that he doesn't fight another supervillain or that he doesn't punch anyone or punch anything. He really just, in you know, he, he goes and he saves the entire West Coast. He saved millions and millions of lives. Like, to me, that's what connected with me. Same thing with Superman Returns. It didn't even dawn on me that it was strange that he didn't fight anybody at the end. Because for me, it was about saving the world and pushing that island, that new Krypton, out into outer space. And it was clear to me that Brian Singer, who, look, I know that... Right now, Brian Singer is who he is. He has his own controversies and his own trials and tribulations. And basically, since Superman Returns came out, the popular thing to do is to shit all over the guy. And listen, you're more than welcome and entitled to do that. But it was very clear to me based on him and his backstory and the elements of Superman that he chose to adapt that he and I saw exactly eye to eye on what makes him special, on what the appeal of Superman is because you got to remember Brian Singer, you know, he, he's, he was an orphan. I mean, not that he was an orphan, but he was adopted and he grew up in a situation where he didn't necessarily feel like he belonged. And he, he was always curious about his true heritage and his true destiny, who he would have been, uh, had his parents kept him and, you know, and all the inherent alienation that comes from feeling like an outsider. And on top of that, we know Brian Singer's gay. And that's another way in which one can feel like an outcast and an outsider. And so for him, the appeal of Superman was to have this guy who has, ad who has faced adversity and who feels this intrinsic otherness, this intrinsic loneliness and isolation, and decides, I just want to do what's right. And not only to honor that, like he did in Superman Returns, but to also 
decide to give him the happiest ending that Superman could ever have. Because Superman's happy ending doesn't come in the form of, I did away with a bad guy. He gave him a son. And if you follow the arc of Superman 1 and 2 and how those inform Superman 3, you know, Superman just wanted to feel like he belonged. And Lois gave him a son. And so when he delivers that speech there at the end of Superman Returns, you know, I always become a puddle. I can't get through it because it's so powerful to me, the emotions that he's going through, to know that now I have something that ties me, that links me to Earth. I have this beautiful boy here, Jason, who's part me and part human. And this is all thanks to Lois, this incredible woman who's put up with me as I've tried to figure out who I am and what I want to be. And, you know, remember, he went back to Krypton to try to find himself, according to the Superman Returns plotline. And here she came and she had his son. Um, you know, it just, it, it really spoke to me. Those themes really spoke to me. And it was very clear to me that Brian Singer was a man after my own heart because he latched on to the same aspects of Superman that I did. Because really, that's something that gets lost in all the... And all the chatter around the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, everything is always about how corny it was and how campy it was and how over the top his Clark is. But really, if you actually watch those movies, especially one and two, something that Reeve does that I feel gets nowhere near as much credit or as much exposure as, as, as it should is there's a melancholy to that performance. There is a bittersweet energy, a tone to that character that he plays, the way he plays him. There's a sadness behind those eyes. There's a guy who just wants to be of this earth or just be a normal guy who realizes I have this responsibility to be a hero. I have this responsibility to do what's right, even though I just want to throw a football and, 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 you know, get the girl and score the touchdown. And he just wants to be Jonathan and Martha's son. He does the, you know, all this stuff was put upon him and he decides to be the greatest savior the world has ever known. But there is a sadness over so much of what Reeve brings to it. And there's a naivety and an innocence to it also in the way he plays Clark. You know, there's such an emotional core to those movies that it always, that's why I always bristle when people talk about, oh, they're so corny and campy and then, oh, what a boring Boy Scout. He's like perfect. How can you root for someone who's perfect? Where are his flaws? And it's like, you're not understanding it. You're not understanding where he's coming from and the pain he has to overcome to decide, okay, I'm going to put myself second and put the world first, you know? And then the one time he decides, maybe I, 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 I could be selfish. Maybe I can go after this woman I love and try to build a life with that in Superman 2. What happens? Zod and Nan and Ursa show up and they start to destroy the world. And he realizes, I can't do this. I can't just be an ordinary man. I have to do what's right. This is my responsibility. And he goes back and he gets his powers back. And this time he knows he's in this for good. He has to be Superman. Like there's, there's such emotional depth 
and, and layers to that performance and to the way it's written and directed and performed that it just boggles the mind to me how many people miss all that. But that inspires me. That is very much how I try to live my life. I try to live my life in the ideals of the Superman from those movies. Because, listen, growing up, I could have been an asshole. With all the different trials and tribulations I was going through, the way I would get bullied, the way I would get, you know, the issues I would have on the home front, the traumas I would deal with, with family and other things that happened to and around me, I could have decided to just be a dark, angry, bitter person and just say, oh, well, you know, I had a shitty childhood, so that's why I'm this way, so fucking deal with it. I always decided, you know what? I'm going to put my best foot forward. And it doesn't matter what's going on with me, if I'm hurting, if I'm sad, if I'm feeling alone. If somebody in need needs me, if someone needs my help, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to do it. And that's what my friends know about me too. I'm, always, I, I'm that friend that you call whenever you need something. Whenever, listen, I just went through a breakup and I need to be with someone so I could vent and talk about it, they call me. Listen, I have to move. There's an emergency. I have to get out of my apartment because of this, this, and that. I'm the one who drops what he's doing, drives over there, and helps them move. I'm the friend who, oh, I need to go to the airport. Fine, I'm there. I'm that friend who's like everyone's like ride or die. And I love that. I'm not, I'm not like bragging. I'm not, this is not... There's no ego in this. I actually, I love that I've been able to be that presence in the lives of those I love. And a lot of that comes from the lessons of Superman. A lot of that comes from you put yourself second and try to be of service to others. And you put your own hardships and your own trials and tribulations behind you. And you go out there and you try your best to do what's right. Even at work. You know, I'll never forget there was, you know, when I found out that my other grandfather, Mario Peña, passed away, I found out about it on my way out the door to go work two back-to-back -back parties. I was DJing a communion in Queens and a Sweet 16 in New Jersey when my mom called me with the sudden heartbreaking news that at 76, I had lost the man I was directly named after, Mario Peña. And I was crushed and I be I was a mess, but then I knew I have to leave. There are people depending on me, and I went out and I worked two parties and I brought joy to hundreds of people that day. You know, there was like a hundred guests at the first party, and the the other one was like a two hundred person extravaganza. And I went out there with a smile on my face, and I entertained the crowd, and I played music, and I helped them make memories that they would you know cherish forever. And then I got back into my car and I wept. And I drove home, finally giving myself the time to think about the loss I had just suffered. But that's always been how I've operated. That's always been how I'm wired. And honestly, a lot of that comes from Superman. And <laughs> Rob Marrera, who writes for the site, he's also a contributing editor for uh, Revenge of the Fans. He was, my, he was my best man at my wedding. And he surprised the hell out of me at my wedding when he was giving his toast. Because I, I never overtly do these things. I just live my life this way. I don't call it... Like right now, these last five minutes explaining to you my nature and how it's inspired by Superman, I've never spoken those words before. I just live my life that way. 
But I'm bringing it up now because Rob floored me because in his speech at my wedding, he said, you know, he brought up all these qualities that I have, that I'm everyone's go-to. And he said, Mario, I want to just say this in front of everyone. You remind me of a particular fictional character. And I'm like, I, I'm like, where is he going with this? Is he going to make a joke? You know, because he's, he's funny and he's sarcastic. And is he going to, is he going to take the piss out of me? What is this? And he starts explaining the qualities and tying it into one particular character, a hero who wears a red cape, Superman. And I'm telling you that, you know, the waterworks were going. And the fact that my best friend, my brother from another mother, felt like I live my life through the ideals of Superman. I mean, there is no higher compliment you could give me than that. And uh, just kind of on a funny note, while we're talking about my wedding, you know, how Superman even factored in in other areas, you know, my, my, my family knows so well how intrinsically linked I am to Superman and how much I care about him that uh, when the whole thing kicked off with the ceremony, uh, I decided, you know, I wanted to walk down the aisle too. You know, I, I'd already, you know, I, I'd been to so many weddings where the groom just kind of very nonchalantly, casually sort of sneaks in there at the head of the uh, at the head of the aisle that I'm like, no, I want to walk down the aisle too. I'm the groom. I'm part of this. And uh, <laughs> I had the DJ play the John Williams Superman march. And I think my favorite part of that, though, wasn't even that it got played, was that while I'm standing there behind all my guests who are all sitting facing forward with their backs to me, they heard the and everyone's heads just whipped back because they knew this must mean that Mario's coming. It was it was pretty amazing. So I walked down the aisle with my dad by my side. My dad was my co-best man for my wedding alongside Rob. So it was cool. And on top of that, my wife surprised me with a groom cake, with a Superman groom cake. So, you know, Superman was all over my wedding. And by the way, that was like one of the best nights of my life. So Superman, my best friend, was there on my biggest night in a few very key, very significant ways. So, um, yeah. So, all right, let's, let's get this thing back on track. In the period where Superman Returns, you know, shortly after it had come out and the whole waiting game of whether or not there would be a sequel, which had all kinds of its own trials and tribulations for the next three or four years, wondering if Singer would get to actually make that very action-packed, epic, Wrath of Khan-style Superman sequel that he kept talking about, um, in that time, you know, I was getting impatient waiting for more Superman. You know, they teased me, you know, Superman returned and then nothing came of it. And it was very agonizing and it was very frustrating. And so, you know, and I, and I started engaging in more and more discussions on blue tights, like defending the film. And by the way, I should mention on Blue Tights, they also had this really cool countdown clock leading up to Superman Returns. So back in like in 2005, when, once it had entered production, I started, you know, I had that on my desktop. So anyway, uh, I'd be on Blue Tights and in discussing it with people, you know, the, 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 there were many who felt that I was like too beholden to the Christopher Reeve version of the character. And it got, you know, they, and they would mention books and things. And this was the period of my life now 
in, you know, pre, uh, pre man of steel post Superman returns where I started broadening my horizons a little bit. You know, I, I started, you know, reading more books. I started looking at different interpretations of the character, you know, in 2010, there was Superman earth one. There was also, you know, the year before that there had been, uh, the Superman brainiac storyline, I believe, uh, written by Jeff Johns, which would eventually give way to the new Krypton storyline. There was also Mark Wade's Birthright book, which I absolutely adored. And, you know, and, and if you recall, you know, I was also, I, I had been a big fan of the books in the mid-90s and collected for a couple of years. And I had also really bought into Lois and Clark, which couldn't have been any more different from the Christopher Reeve movies. So, you know, I, I really sort of expanded my scope of the character in the years post Superman Returns just to try to see, you know, what other interesting, you know, takes on this character. You know, this was also like when I read um, Red Sun and a bunch of other things. So by the time Man of Steel came out, I was ready for something new and different. I was looking to find something exciting and new and fresh and vibrant. And while the first couple of trailers didn't necessarily do much for me, trailer three got me really, really excited. And, you know, up to that point, I'd been a Superman fan for close to 30 years. You know, the, the movie came out right around my 30th birthday. And, you know, I feel like I've loved Superman my entire life. And honestly, my love for the character and for... The uh, certain elements that really spoke to me in very fundamental, intrinsic ways, that's what makes Man of Steel such a troubling movie for me. Because really, the first hour of that movie is honestly probably the greatest Superman storytelling I have ever seen in my entire life. I loved the Krypton stuff. I loved all of the, you know, Superman as like a mysterious um, guardian angel type deal there as he's saving lives at, you know, on the bus and, and, the, and at that bar. And, you know, this idea like Lois is trying to track him down because here's, here's this selfless man who keeps coming out of the shadows to save lives. Like that felt so beautifully Superman. I loved the seriousness with which it was being treated. I loved the, you know, I just, I, I, the, the first hour of Man of Steel is, is probably my favorite Superman, superhero storytelling uh, that I've ever seen. Um, and then, unfortunately, somewhere as that third act begins to unfold, I lose it. I just can't get into it anymore. You know, it's it's right after the uh, the uh, the fighting in Smallville. You know, I, I enjoyed when he we, when he's attacking Zod and he's saying, you know, you think you could threaten my mother? Like that was cool, and especially because I brought my mom to see the movie, so I'm sitting there next to my mom and I got to experience that with her. Um, and the cool little bit where like the uh, the pilot falls out of the helicopter and he saves him. And shortly after that, Colonel Hardy is like, this man is our friend. Like that all felt pretty good. I'm like, all right, so far, so good. But unfortunately, the movie from there just, uh, you know, it goes on for another 40 minutes. And it's all, you know, for me, it felt like destruction porn. It's just buildings collapsing, thousands of people dying, and a Superman who seemingly doesn't care. And I know that some of you are rolling your eyes and whatever, that's fine. You interpret it differently. But for me, I just never really got the sense that he realized what was going on around him. 
There are thousands upon thousands of people dying, and all he's doing is beating the fuck out of Zod. And I'm like, that's great. He's beating the fuck out of Zod. But are we going to try to, like, get Zod away from here? Are we going to try to reason with Zod? Are we going to try to convince him that there's another way to do this? Are we going to play up the drama of I am an orphan of this planet and I'm currently fighting to the death the one remaining element of it? Are we going to like play into the drama of any of that? Are we just going to watch two demigods vaguely beat the hell out of each other? Because we can't even tell how much damage they're doling out because they're both superhuman. Are they hurting each other or are they just punching each other for vanity? Like what is this? So to me, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of that third act left me numb. It wasn't thrilling for me. It wasn't thrilling. It wasn't awe-inspiring. It didn't fire up my imagination or feel like a Superman story. It was less about Superman making saves and more about Superman beating the fuck out of somebody. And that just doesn't speak to me. It doesn't speak to me. And to me, it betrayed the very thoughtful setup. You know, that, that whole first hour and a little bit of change was all playing up the elements of Superman that mean the most to me, only for it to go right out the window the second the fighting begins. You know, and to have him, like, in the middle of this, you know, collapsed metropolis, kissing Lois and making the little wisecrack there where she's like, oh, I hear it's all downhill after the first kiss. And he's like, oh, I'm pretty sure that's only for humans. It's like, are we really making jokes right now? You are in the middle of a demolished city. Those ashes that are currently floating around to remind us of 9-11, those ashes are like burnt up civilians who died on your first day on the job. You know, to me, so much of that movie just like it goes completely into the shitter as soon as the, the, the fight moves to Metropolis and it just becomes about how hard they could beat each other up rather than trying to see how do we create peace here. And that's why, honestly, once Man of Steel came out, you know, I it, the, the, this cinematic version of the character became a Superman I no longer recognized. And that's where I was just kind of forced to sort of hand him off. Just kind of go, okay, this is who he is now. You know, people are embracing this version of the character. I guess I'm in the minority. So go ahead, have him. You know, this is your version. I'll go back and I'll continue to read books. You know, I'll go and I'll look at the old movies or I'll look at old TV series. And I'll always have what made Superman special to me. And you guys can have this version of him because I don't know this version of him. And I'm going to be making a follow-up video to this. It's something I've been mulling over for a long time. But I'm going to make a video that follows up this episode of the podcast for next week uh, where I pitch to you what, for me, would be my Superman movie. Because people always like to make assumptions. They go, oh, you just want a carbon copy of Christopher Reeve and Richard Donner or whatever. It's like, no, I fucking don't. <laughs> but people like to make those assumptions about what I'd like. And they put they try to put words in my mouth. Like, oh, dude, would you would you want it to have played out this way? And is he, is he just saving kittens from trees all the time? And this, this, and that. Like, so I want I kind of want to like put to bed, put to rest what exactly it is for me that would be a very fascinating Superman story uh, that that would speak to me. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. I'm going to make a video of that to put up next week. It's going to be my pitch for the ideal Superman movie for my strain of fan. And hopefully some of you guys like it. But now let's talk about Superman in some other mediums. Let's talk about 
some books that I would love to see get adapted and things that I feel like they, they should have a little uh, better exposure and hopefully talking about it today gets some people talking about it. Uh, you know, there was a, a series of books based on Superman and Doomsday having a rematch that I feel like no one talks about, and they're amazing. There was a three-book set, I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's called Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey. And it features a rematch between the two of them. And it also is finally where we get Doomsday's origin story. And I love his origin story. You know, granted, it was interesting having this mysterious beast just come and kill Superman, you know, who just seemingly got stronger and stronger the more they fought and this, this and that. But understanding where he comes from and why he is the way that he is, is really fascinating stuff. And that came from the Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey books, where basically we find out that, you know, long story short, this like, you know, he, he was he was created on this alien planet with a very harsh, hostile environment with these aliens out there that attack and kill anything that come for, you know, that, 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 that dare step outside. And the scientist basically keeps on sending this alien baby thing out into the wild. It keeps getting attacked and nearly killed. And then he brings it in and resuscitates it. And basically over time, he forces this alien being to develop evolutionary powers, where as it goes, it adapts as it goes. It, uh, but by the end of this process, it can never truly be killed. It's been killed and attacked so much that anything you do to this creature... It just makes it stronger, and he learns how to adapt to it. And I loved it. And of course, eventually, the scientist loses control of his creation, and it kills him. And then he has to get like pretty much uh, like imprisoned and tied to that asteroid. And the asteroid gets shot out into space. And of course, eventually, it lands on Earth. And that's how ultimately he crosses paths with Superman. But, you know, I love that book and I'd love to see that that book become its own movie or its own little mini series of movies. Um, I've also always said I would love to see Kingdom Come get adapted. I think that would be amazing. You know who I used to think would play a good old man Superman is going to maybe sound kind of random. But Chris Noth, the guy who played Big on uh, on Sex and the City, he always reminded me of like Alex Ross's old man Superman drawings. Um, I mean, I think by now it's too late. I, I've, I've been suggesting him for 10 years. Now he's probably too old. But if you look at, at, at Chris Noth in the mid-zeros, back when, you know, around 2006, 2007, he could have totally been an old Superman. Um as for like, you know, just want, I want to just briefly touch on the video games, by the way, because over the years, you know, there have been a few attempts and none of them really took off. For some reason, it's been very hard for someone to make just a great standalone Superman game. Um, like, remember you guys, I don't know, there, there was an arcade game I loved that uh, it had the actual, you know, uh, the John Williams music. And if you played as player two, you were Shazam, which was cool. Uh, and you could fly in it at, at any given moment. You could fly and hover and you had his, his, uh, laser vision. And I mean, I could never get far enough in the game because those old arcade games were brutal in the eighties. You know, you get, you get hit once or twice and you already need another quarter. And you know, I didn't have that many quarters. So, um, 
so there was that one. Then there was a, a Death of Superman video game I remember playing for the Super Nintendo, which was pretty cool. But I remember also there, it was weird because they gave him a health bar. And there was also stuff where, like, you didn't always have access to all of his powers. And I'm like, this feels weird. Like, you know, you're you're fundamentally changing what makes Superman cool by doing it this way. And he doesn't get a health bar. What's wrong with you? He's, in, you know, he's impervious. Um, so honestly, and I brought this up, I believe on the Revengers podcast, it might've been this one. I know I was discussing it with Brett and a lot of times the lines get blurred. I never know which show I said it on. It's the, uh, dangers of recording two podcasts every week, but, um, there, believe it or not, the tie in game for Superman returns, the core mechanics of that got it right. And I kind of want to just put this out there because I hope somebody else steals these mechanics and just builds a better game with them. But in short, instead of giving Superman a health bar, which is nonsense, they gave the city a health bar. And whenever a mission or a threat would arise, you know, the health bar was if people are dying, if the city is being damaged, then that's how you lose and fail the mission. How brilliant is that for a Superman game? Because that is how you hurt Superman. That is how, you know, in theory, he would define his failure. If he is unable to save enough lives, if he is unable to bring everyone home alive, that's, that is his failing. So I thought that was great. And I thought the fact that you had access to pretty much all of his powers right from the beginning. And it's an open world game. So you could fly around. You could lift up a car and throw it into outer space if you want. You could shoot laser vision. You have the freeze breath. You have everything right there on the spot. And it was just a shame because the game gave you like nothing of value to do. The game was just a huge steaming waste of time of repetitive missions and just a giant nothing burger of a game. And I just hope in my dream of dreams and my heart of hearts that a company like Rocksteady or maybe even specifically Rocksteady, who made those great Arkham games uh, for Batman, gets their hands on Superman and that they implement some of those ideas into their game. Make it open world, give the world itself a health bar that Superman has to tend to, and give him all his powers. He, sh he shouldn't need to pick up a power-up or, or accrue a bunch of XP before he can get access to doing the stuff that we bought the game for him to be able to do. You know, um, and by the way, no, no conversation about Superman in the video game form is complete without discussing Superman 64. I mean, that game is a notorious turkey, so I don't even have to beat that dead horse, but it was a horribly glitchy game, and it was based on the animated series, which I know I haven't discussed on this show yet, because I, I believe it or not, I never really watched the animated series that much. I, I, I saw little bits of it, but for whatever reason, I never really bought into it, or it never really grabbed my imagination. So when I think about Superman in animated form, I think about the Fleischer cartoons, and I think about this short-lived one that was on CBS at the end of the 80s, which was pretty cool too. But the animated series, nothing against it. I remember thinking this is pretty cool, but for some reason, I think maybe it was like Tim Daly's portrayal. It felt very stiff. It didn't have like the warmth that I've come to expect from Superman, so I never really got into it. But either way, uh, Superman 64 was based on that. It had that animation style. And all I remember is I rented it from Blockbuster. And at some point in the game, something happened where like I'm, I'm walking around and I like went through the floor and I just started walking into infinite darkness. 
And then if you've whipped the camera around, you can see the level that you were on just getting smaller and smaller in the distance while you walk away. And I used to joke about with my friends. I'm like, I think I'm just walking around the cartridge now. I've left the game and I'm walking inside of the cartridge. It was just such a disaster of a game. So can we please get an epic Superman game just once, please? And before we turn our attention back towards the cinematic version of Superman, uh, in case anyone's wondering why I stopped collecting comics in the mid-90s, it was, it was right around the time they did the thing where he breaks off into red Superman and blue Superman, and he, he looks like a lightning bolt. Uh, right around that time, for me, things just started getting way too hokey. And I had tried my best, but by that point, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of done. So I have those books saved in a, in a, in a box in my garage. Uh, maybe I'll sell them one day, and hopefully they're worth something. But yeah, th that was the story arc when he became the blue and red Superman made out of like a beam of lightning or something. And that's when I was like, okay, adios. <laughs> but um, yeah, with regard to now where we're at right now with Superman, with where we're at, you know, I'm not reading any of the current books. I remember I read some of the new 52 stuff, but again, I've never been a huge comic book person, so I didn't really keep up with it. So my, my main Superman right now is obviously Henry Cavill. Um, where am I at with Henry Cavill at this stage of the game? You know, because I think he's got it in him. When I look at him, I see Superman. When I hear him, I hear Superman. I love him in the suit. I love so much about the foundational building blocks of the first hour of Man of Steel. But honestly, you know, uh, in Batman v Superman, I couldn't get behind him much at all. Uh, I, I think I liked him a little better in the Ultimate Edition, but still, it just it feels like he was just directed to be way too conflicted and way too like miserable all the time, and I just couldn't relate to him. I couldn't. You know, I, I, I like the Superman that can that, that, that feels like your friend, the one who never makes you feel guilty for him needing you or, or for you needing him. Like, he, you know, in so many of like the saves in Batman v Superman, he looks like troubled and, and, and like he's strained and like it's taken something out of him to fly over there to help you. And that's honestly why, despite all the critiques, I actually really loved his portrayal in Justice League. You know, was it a little over the top and a little bit too much with the one-liner? Sure. But overall, you know, you could tell Cavill was excited to be able to play him like somebody who loves what he does. Like somebody who wants to save and feels this responsibility, but isn't crushed by this responsibility. So I'm really hoping that for the next Superman movie, you know, they 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 look to what happened in Justice League and try to build on it. You know, ixnay some of the really sort of extra over-the-top corny stuff and really just focus on, you know, a kind hero who is willing to sacrifice his own happiness for the good of mankind and try to balance it by having a healthy relationship with Lois and all the complexities that come with that and the complexities of a hero in, a, in, in an increasingly cynical, dark world. Because that's always been the key. You know, everyone's always like, oh, he's so goody-goody. He's so cookie-cutter. How do you make a movie about a big square-jawed Boy Scout in this day and age? And honestly, you know, I hate to give them credit for it because I, I never grew up on Marvel. But I really feel like the Captain America movies got it. You know, you don't make him 
dark and angry and conflicted. You put someone who has noble intentions in a world that's kind that's constantly trying to snuff out his optimism, and there's a great sense of drama and tension there. So you put Superman in a story where the world around him is dark, where the world around him is cynical and cruel, and I think that's the key to telling a Superman story that can connect. And if you, you know, if you doubt me, just look at the Captain America movies. If you look at First Avenger, if you look at Winter Soldier, they perfectly navigated that line where you have the good, true blue, blue chipper hero in a world that sucks, filled with evil people and their cruel intentions, and him just trying to just do what's right in the middle of that. So, yeah, because the funny thing is, like, I, I, I've always been more a fan of, like, the real villain in us in any given Superman story is human nature. Him trying to get through to human beings that we should not be destroying each other, that we should be helping each other. Him trying to inspire others to to go towards the light and to and to choose hope over despair. Like to me, that that is the ultimate battle for Superman, trying to win over humanity and to get them to understand that there is good in the world and you have to go for it. And you don't fight hate with hate, you fight hate with love. All these themes, by the way, that ultimately got put into the Wonder Woman movie instead of the Superman movies so far. Now, that's, that's why I love Wonder Woman so much, because all of the ideals in that movie from the Alan Heinberg script and from the Patty Jenkins direction, it's perfectly what I want from a hero and it's perfectly what I would want from Superman. But sadly, me, this lifelong Superman fan, the closest I've seen to a Superman I can relate to is in the Wonder Woman movie and in the Captain America movies, not in any of the actual recent Superman appearances, save for some really nice glimpses of that in Justice League. So I'm just hoping that whoever gets the job uh, really, you know, looks at looks at what's come before, really honors the history and tries to make Superman a friend again and not someone who feels so crushed and burdened by the perceptions of him and the, the soul crushing responsibility of being the world's you know, greatest savior when maybe deep down all you ever really wanted was to be Jonathan Kent's son. You know, that's why I love that moment in Man of Steel where he goes, I just want to, you know, what if I just want to be your son? And Jonathan says, you are my son. Like that, that internal struggle of I just want to be normal, but people need me. To me, that is the beauty and the drama and the tragedy underlying any great heartfelt Superman story. So I hope somebody picks up on that and doesn't just use him as a blunt instrument who has all these powers so therefore he can beat the fuck out of people because I don't need to see that anymore. I, got, I, I saw plenty of it with Zod. I saw plenty of it with Doomsday. I don't need to see that right now. I need to see a heartfelt, warm story about a hero doing what's right in a world that keeps trying to tell him he's wrong. And I'll get into more of that in my uh, in my YouTube video and in, in the pitch for for what uh, what a perfect Superman story is for me. Um, and you know what I, th I I I entered this without a script like I usually do, 
and I did not expect this to go an hour and ten minutes. I'm a little, I'm a little embarrassed um, because I, I meant to talk Superman for a while and then maybe segue into some DC news and whatnot. But honestly, between this and the conversation, I really want you guys to hear with Nigel Bach. I think uh, I don't want this podcast to be two and a half hours long because ain't nobody got time for that. So what I'm going to do is. I'm going to save some of the uh, some uh, all of the rest of the DC chatter, everything going on with um, Birds of Prey and perhaps Gotham City Sirens. You know, what it means for that, what it means for Suicide Squad and Batgirl and little things I've been hearing from others. Yeah, I'm going to save all that for uh, the Revengers podcast, which comes out on Tuesday. So I'll, I'll be discussing it with Brett and Vanessa so you guys can hear it there. But for now, uh, I'm going to take you know a left turn. You know, aside from Superman, what's one of the other big loves in my life? Movies and creating. And I recently stumbled onto this man's work, Mr. Nigel Bach. And I, you know, I, 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 I ventured to get him out here. I mean, not out here, but onto the show for you guys to hear. Uh, it really is a remarkable story, especially if you're somebody who wishes to create and, 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 and like me, has trouble taking things from the idea stage in your mind and putting them into actual action. Uh, what Nigel was able to pull off is nothing short of beautiful. So I want you to hear his story. I want you to hear about his trilogy of uh, found footage horror comedies. And he even makes like an exclusive announcement about what he's working on next. So, and, I, and I'm really glad to support and nurture, uh, you know, a, a filmmaker's, you know, an, an indie filmmaker's work. So I'm glad that he chose here, the El Fanboy podcast, to break the story. So listen to this conversation with Nigel Bach. Over the course of the last few weeks, I've been yapping your ears off here on El Fanboy and over on the Revengers podcast about this Bad Ben trilogy and filmmaker Nigel Bach, and now it is my pleasure to bring him here to talk to you directly about what he's done. Uh, Nigel, how you doing today? Good. I managed to slip you in between all my very important appointments like <laughs> haircuts and AA meetings. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You know, I love that that's so like you wear it on your sleeve that you're just kind of like an average Joe. Like I went to I went to your website and your bio is so no frills. It's just like I'm just a guy in his basement who loves his dog and creating things. I love that about you. There's no ego there. Thanks for asking me on today. And hopefully I'm interesting. Oh, well, listen, just just based on what I what I came across on Amazon Prime, you're extremely interesting because you, you got to know my wife and I just totally stumbled into this thing. We were just looking for something on Amazon one night. She saw the batter Ben screenshot and she's like, what is that? Let's watch the trailer for that. And we watched the trailer and we're like, this looks hysterical. So first we wanted to go chronologically. So we went and like searched for Bad Ben. Then the next night we saw Steelmanville Road. Then the next night we saw Batter Ben. And then after that we celebrated with the making of. So we totally got fully absorbed in what you did there. Well, Mario, I also stumbled into this because this was not the plan in the beginning. Really? So what, what was the plan? Well, I was going to make a... A film with a cast and it was going to be like a young girl because you know that's typically who's in horror films yeah a young girl at home her parents are away she has her boyfriend over even though she's not supposed to 
all hell breaks loose. Everybody but her winds up dead. Oh, Just wow. a typical run-of-the-mill horror film. And would it have been and, like paranormal or would it have been like a killer comes to the house? No, it was, go- it was going to be similar to paranormal okay. activity in that it was shot on regular cameras, actually security cameras, because I used to, years ago, I used to produce TV commercials for Comcast as an independent contractor, just not like for Pizza Hut, but for like Joe's Pizza down the street. Yeah, like local businesses, yeah. And none of them really had any money, and they were just difficult. It was just a difficult business to be in. And I've been an aspiring screenwriter for years, and I got, I've been, when I say for years, I literally have been writing stories for like 30 years, but I spent... I spent 17 years working for the federal government, and then I spent a decade taking care of my mother. And after she passed peacefully in 2013, I I really dove into screenplay writing more. And people used to say to me, because I did commercials, hey, you own cameras, you should make a film. Yeah. Well, the problem, I mean, that sounds logical to the average person, but the problem is, is just because I own a camera doesn't mean I can make Avatar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't have those type of cameras. Yeah. Um, I guess you'd call my cameras prosumer. Prosumer, uh, gotcha, yeah. That actually is a term for professional consumer. So I like it's that. not okay, yeah. It's not quite like, because you could spend a million dollars on a camera. Yeah, of course. Anyway, so as I, my plan was, I said, you know, I can't do a film like Avatar or something that quality, but I can do a film like Paranormal Activity. Yeah. And while I cared for my mother in this house, I had a bunch of security cameras installed so that I could always keep an eye on her and the health aides taking care of her while I was out. Ah, I see. Once in a while, I'd look at those cameras and, like, I'd say, man, it would be cre-. at night. I'd look at them, yeah, and I'd say it would be creepy if something walked right past that camera. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So I said to myself, I said, you know what? With the equipment I have, I can shoot this type of film. So actually, even though it's made to look like it was shot on security cameras, they were actually GoPros. Uh, that were scaled down a little bit to look like security cameras. Get out of here. Okay. That's how, that's as simple as it came about. And the toughest part of the process was every time you move a camera, when you'd have to go back to a scene, you'd Mm. have to, to get the camera lined up just like it was before. Yeah. But it was, so what happens is I have this cast lined up. I have like five people. And as I'm approaching May of 2016, when I plan on shooting it, one by one they're dropping out. So I'm down to the last character, which is a female actor. I'm driving down the street to my house in the pouring rain. I get a text message from her. says, moving to L.A., can't be in your film. (laughs) Oh, wow. Good luck. So wow. Yeah. I dropped the phone on the front seat and I'm like, I give up. And then I drive in a little more. It's pouring rain. And I just grab the phone, start recording myself. And I said, well, here I am on my way home from settlement on the house on Steelmanville Road. 
And then I pull in the driveway and I point at the house. I say, not bad for a sheriff's sale, huh? <laughs> well, that moment, those 30 seconds between where I gave up and I said, you know what? Just start shooting yourself. <laughs> Very glad I did that because in one take, that became the opening scene to Bad Ben. That's amazing. That's I, I mean, I, when you mentioned that in the making of, my wife and I looked at each other with our jaws on the floor because I remember that opening and I remember like the, you know, the whole thing felt – like it was very well put together, you know, well conceived. Like, you know, you were someone who obviously had limited means, but, you know, the whole thing seemed like it was very well coordinated. And to find out that it all just kind of came from this spur of moment, spur of the moment decision to just film that intro. And then as you put it in the documentary, you said, you know, you winged it. So explain that to me. You basically winged the movie. Well, after I get out of the car, I walk in the house and I film that scene where He's walking around checking stuff out. And yeah. He looks down, I look down in the basement and I hear that crashing sound. So I was just pulling stuff out of my butt as I went <laughs> along. And after about the first day of shooting, I said, you know, when you see these horror films today, it's usually an attractive young lady or <laughs> attractive young couple. Yeah. And it almost borders on pornographic half the time because <laughs> – Hey, you feel like a voyeur. Said, who's going to want to see a bald, fat, 50-year-old guy running around the house half the time in his underwear, <laughs> getting the crap kicked out of him by some demon or whatever? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, Mario, the results of what happened after this done, nobody was more shocked than me. But before I get to that, as I'm running around the house and I'm filming this, you know, there was something in the basement. There was other things in the house. I had – first I had a creature. Then I had demons. Then I had ghosts. I was coming up with everything I possibly could as I went along. Yeah. I literally made this up as I went along except for the ending. I, okay. knew, I knew what the ending was going to be. So I shot like the first 15 minutes and then I shot the ending. And, oh, I, wow. and my goal, my goal was to get what I had shot to the ending somehow. So that's oh, what so I you did. like you like reverse engineered it. Oh, that's great! And, and then, no, go ahead. It's interesting you say reverse engineering because that's how I decided what type of movie to make and how to market it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You thought about you know what, what do I have within re, within my means and what kind of story can I do and then I work backwards from there. That's that's really you know that's something else. How long did it take you to to, to you know how long was the production for Bad Ben? How many days about, did you film? About a month. Okay, and it. Was- just like here and there, sometimes I'd wake up at two in the morning and I'd say, you know, this would be creepy. And I, that's why you always saw me in my underwear. Because <laughs> you had your best ideas in the middle of the night. I climbed the first. You had to shoot at night because it was a hard. Most horror films don't happen in the day, although some have and they've been done effectively. Yeah. <laughs> but I get up and I would just shoot something and shoot it at night and then edit it during the day. And it was really actually... This was shot in May of 2016, but did not air on Amazon till October. Yeah. I was, it was suggested to me that I put this in a film festival in LA called Scream Fest. Okay. And I don't, I don't, I want to talk realistically about something because 
I don't mean to trash somebody, but I'll talk real about the my realistic experience yeah. so people's expectations and uh, match reality. And also people that want to get involved in this or, or go further in this know this. Um, this film festival in L.A. that I, and I won't mention what the film festival is, but they it's a big film festival and it's it's where paranormal activity was actually purchased. Okay. And the friend of mine who's a pretty big producer suggested I put it in there. He says studios come with fat checkbooks. So I submit it in June and you don't and the film festival wasn't until October, but you don't get notified until September like the twenty fifth. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not a lot of notice at all. Right. I sat there with like a finished film for months and then along comes September 25th and I get uh, thank you. We're not interested. Mm. So that's when I decide to put it on Amazon. But something interesting, I paid the entry fee to get in this film festival and it wasn't that much money. So that's not the issue. But you have to give them a link to watch it, like on Vimeo or, or YouTube, yeah. a private link. And I gave them a private link on YouTube. And the thing that kind of irritated me was, even though uh, I guess they don't know that YouTube has analytics. Yeah. I could tell that they watched my 90-minute film for 12 minutes the first day. Oh, I sent are you kidding me? Yeah, the first day I sent it to them in June. And they never looked at it again. And they just picked other things and went forward. And I even wrote them afterwards. I said, you know, I'm a big boy and I can take that. My film wasn't your type of film. But you watch 12 minutes of it. No, we watch all this. So I'm like, okay. But the reason yeah. why I bring that up is because, you know, a lot of people put their put all their eggs in one basket. And you just can't do that. I mean, if, it, if one thing doesn't work, you go a different direction. And there's very few people out there that will help you. Because they're trying to do the same thing, too. And you ask them for advice and they just uh, they'll give you some, but they're not really thrilled. And this isn't everybody, but they're not thrilled in seeing you make it in a career that they're also trying to make it in. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're kind of going at this on your own. But that was the best thing that happened to me because I took that film and I went to Amazon. They had a program called Amazon Video Direct. And I uploaded the film there. It's very similar to YouTube. But if you have the option of being seen on YouTube or Amazon. Yeah, of course. There's not even a question. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm sorry. Amazon will accept will accept anybody. So, I mean, provided you meet certain criteria. Yeah. Like one of their bizarre things is product placement or showing a website. I could not have in a film an actual website, which is the why at the end of Bad or Ben, when I mention my website, you don't see it on the screen because <laughs> you're not allowed. They're afraid you're marketing people away from Amazon. Wow. Okay. I see. I get it. So what happens with Bad Ben is I upload it to Amazon and it, uh, I figure maybe it'll stream. I might make $1,000 off the thing. It might stream... Yeah, you know, the course of a month, maybe 
couple thousand minutes, just enough to earn me a few hundred bucks. Well, little did I know what was about to happen, and I don't. And the only way I advertised this was on Facebook and a little bit on Twitter. Now, when you talked about reverse engineering before, that's exactly what I did when I made this film. Because the first thing is, I knew I had limitations on cameras. But I went on Facebook and I looked around for pages of movies that were done that had huge followings. And Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity had huge followings. Yeah. So when you face a Facebook ad and you target the audience you want it to reach, you can say people who like, and I pick Paranormal Activity, the film. That's genius, and then you'll, yeah. And so I decided to make a film that there was already an audience for. Most filmmakers make a, and I think this is kind of a more honorable way of doing it, most filmmakers make something they believe in. Yeah. And I believe in this. But my belief came after I went out there and saw what people were buying. And then I said, you know what? I'll make something similar to that. Yeah, and you the funny thing about Bad Ben was I thought I was making a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I sat there and I went around, I thought I was making, I legitimately thought I was making a horror film. And then as the reviews started coming in, People were finding it a combination of horror and comedy. And suddenly, and, yeah, you, you found your genre was right there. You were making a horror comedy. <laughs> right, and I, I didn't know that. In fact, interesting about that, when people, you know, would I would be very interactive with the audience, including on Amazon reviews. I am banned from commenting on Amazon. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't surprise me, but keep going. Well, you may have seen some of my Facebook live broadcasts. To be funny sometimes, I will read negative reviews. <laughs> now, I think one of the most hysterical things on television, and I think it, I'd say it's hysterical, like I watch it all the time, but I'm pretty sure it's Kim, Jimmy Kimmel that does it, are mean tweets. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. When they have celebrity read tweets about themselves that yeah. are nasty. Yeah. I just find that the most, I'm, I'm laughing right now as yeah. I'm saying, I just find it hysterical. So I'll read these comments. And anyway, I would comment on face on, uh, Amazon reviews and I got warned once, but they didn't tell me what I did wrong. <laughs> and then the second warning comes with a lifetime ban. I can never comment. Oh, on, come on. Really? I'm talking about if I went on Amazon right now and bought double A batteries, I couldn't comment. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And it's just, I mean, people, purchasers can say the nastiest things. Yeah, but yeah. I didn't write back and call them an a-hole or anything, but I would sit there and this was what I got banned for. I finally found out. Somebody wrote, anybody that's rating this movie good must be friends or, or must be a friend or a family member of Nigel Bach. Yeah. Well, number one, I don't have that many friends. <laughs> and to make a statement that anybody that liked this is stupid. Yeah, that's un it, that's unforgivable. That's, well, because, and I would say, you know, did you ever think maybe you're the one that's stupid? 
So that's what Amazon banned me for. Well, you know what? I, I, I'm all about trying to shine a spotlight on, on how positive this whole experience has been and been and what, how inspirational it is that you basically one man banned this thing. Like you were your own marketing department. You were your own director, your own actor, your own writer. It, it just the, – the whole thing floors me. You did all this by yourself. You, you came to all these different hurdles and you surpassed them. And you, you know, you're succeeding. You know, you've made now three of these movies. You also have a, a YouTube series now based on the Tom Riley character, right? Well, that's that's actually Amazon too. Oh, nice. Riley. But what you know, I don't know that I'm continuing with the animated series, and here's and here's why: the people that have watched it loved it. Yeah, it, it's got the highest reviews. The problem is, it's very time consuming to make it. Yeah, animation. yeah, I bet. And it just, when I compare the two to each other, the films are streaming much, much more than the animated series. And animation isn't everybody's cup of tea. It also hasn't found its audience yet. So I got to give it a little time. Yeah. But if it begins to pick up and there's more interest in it, then I'll take and do more. But I actually made a kind of like the decision I made for Bad Ben. I made a decision this week to shoot a fourth film Ooh. similar to bad bad this week okay and what's going but on with that can we get back to that in a okay. second because yeah, sure when i made bad Ben, i had no no idea how how it would take off well it it took off mm-hmm. and it actually got the avd's amazon video direct star award for October, November, and December of that first year, which is means it was one of the top uh, 100 independently submitted films wow. on Amazon. Yeah. So it, it like I'm sitting there when I was expecting to maybe get a couple thousand minutes streamed, I started getting you know a hundred thousand minutes a day, wow. and it was just it was shocking to me. I mean yeah. that all the People around the world are seeing me in my underwear. And uh, <laughs> so after the success of Bad Ben, you know, there were a lot of questions for your listeners that haven't seen the film. This was a film shot all on security cameras in the house. And the character I played, Tom Riley, was being tormented by something. <laughs> yeah. So the questions were at, at the end of the film, why were all the cameras in the house? What was in the basement? What And there were some other questions. So I decided to do Steelmanville Road, which was a prequel to this, that explained why all the cameras were in the house mm-hmm. and what was in the basement and who the previous owners were and the backstory. Yeah. And I actually had a cast for that because people took me a little more serious. It was a little easier. Yeah, you could that. refer to Bad Ben and have like, oh, I want to be a part of that. You know, yeah. I had a cast and they come in and I I loved making that movie. The cast was awesome, but the fans hated it. <laughs> you know, well, as a fan, I could tell you, yeah, it definitely you, you know what was missing from that? I didn't really even have all like qualms with the movie. It was you. I wanted more you, more Tom Riley. And the fact that there was no real Tom aside from the little kind of Easter egg towards the end, it was right. like, you know, my wife and I were like, "Oh, we just want to spend more time with Tom." That's why we went directly into Batter Ben the very next night, but 
You know, I, I'm well, sorry that people didn't really uh, take the Steelmanville ro- Road all that much. Well, Steelmanville Road has gone on to find its own audience. Yeah. Because it's it's basically a standalone film. It can be. Yeah. And it's different type of film. So it's very flattering when people tell me the draw was me, because if you ask me if I think I'm an actor even now, I'd tell you no. <laughs> um, am I entertaining? I'm goofy. But, you know, that's, that's basically the result of genetics. Um, so I, I just uh, – that well, you know what? I, I want to talk about Tom, Tom Riley for a second, if we could, because like th- that character, my wife and I are so taken with him because of his attitude towards the whole thing. And I actually spoke about this on the show last week. But just to reiterate, I love that Tom, like he doesn't get scared or spooked. He gets fucking mad. He gets annoyed at the uh, supernatural entities in the house and he like chastises them and tells them to stop it. And I just love that his only real override goal is to be able to flip the house and turn a profit. He, like, everything, everything is framed within the idea of, is this going to increase the value of the home or decrease the value of the home? And having that single-minded focus, I think, I think Tom, it makes Tom such a hysterical lead character. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And that's quite often the feedback I, I've received. And what happens as a as you as you know, having seen Bad Ben, I die at the end. I get drugged in the basement, and you see me getting drugged across the floor by a chain around my neck, and you saw how we did that in the making of Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after we do Steelmanville Road, and I show up, but see, when I was doing Bad Ben, I didn't know what the reaction of the audience would be. I didn't know they would fall in love with that character, yeah. who basically is me, by the way. <laughs> but I could tell. I love it. <laughs> then I do Steelmanville Road, and I get the results of uh, Tom Riley was so funny, and this was dark and all. And uh, so I said, "Well, we're going to shoot a sequel. To, I, I'm going to shoot a sequel to Bad Ben. Yeah, and this time I'm going to embrace comedy. We're going to call. In fact, one of my fans uh, in a Facebook Live." video called he said it should be called badder ben so i picked <laughs> that name from him and it was then somebody said uh, it should be called breaking ben which i thought because <laughs> i could have used like the you know the elements chart to start yeah 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 i said i'll probably get sued for that yeah so i said, but wait i died at the end of bad ben how do i do this well did i die yeah, it's so, true. We don't actually I, see you die. I figured out a, a way, and as you saw, this team of paranormal investigators who are uh, Matt Schmidt and Jackie Baker, they're a comedy team. Yeah, Schmidt. Yeah, they are just, they are hysterical. Yes, and the they really are. And the reason why we called him Schmidt in the whole film instead of Matt was because I, before I did the third film, in the second film, the lead character's name was Matt. Ah, there you go. Okay. So I didn't want to have another Matt, so we used Schmitty, which is his actual last name. And David, who Greenberg, who was the producer of the, you know, the lead of the paranormal team, he was a screenwriting professor. I took his screenwriting course with him, and he's also a filmmaker. 
So I got them down here to be in it. We shot it over last summer, and that was a blast. And as you know from the the film, they came to the house to do a documentary on what had happened previously, and they find out they find footage stored on the memory of one of the cameras that shows after it appears I died. I didn't. I come walking up the steps battered but alive, yep. and I leave. And they find me and bring me back, which took us into the ridiculousness that was bad or bad. Yeah. Now, you know what? Let me ask you something. For, for, for like an aspiring filmmaker who maybe wants to get their movie on Amazon, um, it, it looks like you were able to go back and maybe re-upload a slightly altered version of Bad Ben. Right. Like after the fact, because in, in, in Bad Ben, you refer to it as a horror comedy. Is that correct? Right. And didn't you make that discovery that it was more of a comedy like after you'd gotten the feedback? So did you have to like add, put that back in, like add that into the movie and then re-upload it? Or is, is the Bad Ben that's there still just the original file you uploaded all those, you know, in, in 2016? It's, it's the original version. I just changed the description of it a little bit. Gotcha. And and by the time you, better go ahead. You can also change a film or, or change a trail or anything you want. It just then goes through an approval process again. But while it's going through that process, the original version you uploaded will still be there. Gotcha. Okay. And you know so pretty efficient how they work too. It only takes like a matter of two to three days to get approved. That that was actually going to be my next question for an aspiring filmmaker out there. So if you want to get your movie onto Amazon now, and I'm curious. To, so you when you go to Amazon Video Direct, like that has a direct relationship with the Amazon Prime streaming service, or does it have to do certain amount of numbers there before it goes prime? No, it's uh, it's directly related. And you can choose whether you're renting, selling, or allowing it free with Prime or free with ads. Okay. Uh, free with ads is very similar to like the YouTube uh, format. Yeah. But the reason why you would make it available for rent or for purchase is because not everybody has Prime. I see. But you, you could choose as long as it's approved and – it, it most likely will be. I mean, I've never had one disapproved. You, there's three things you need. You need a film shot. They have some some uh, specs listed on their site, which I suggest you check before you make a film. Yeah. Uh, because you'd hate to have your film done and find out you can't uh, use it. I'll give you, for instance... They don't play a, a, an indie submitted film can't be in 4K, but that's all right because if you did shoot something in 4K, it's going to look great in HD, so you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But it's the the attraction to like when you want to go on iTunes or try to get on Netflix or go on Google Play. You can't submit to them directly. You have to go through what's called an aggregator, which are these companies that are go-between that basically package everything together and submit them to those platforms and get you on. Okay. But I'll give you an example. That costs like $1,500 sometimes per platform to put them on. Wow, and that's fifteen. That's what? That's five times more what you spent to make the first Bad Ben, right? Three hundred bucks. 
let me tell you, Bad Ben would have cost me 200 bucks if I didn't get blood on the harness that I used to get drug across the floor. <laughs> I would have taken that back to Home Depot, but it had fake blood all over Oh, man. You know, Nigel, this is just the, the, your story is so inspiring to me because of all this, but, but because of the fact that you did it you know, yourself on more or less like no budget on a shoestring budget that you went up there and you winged a movie because, you know, it is for me and, and, and for others like me, you know, a lot of us want to do this, but we always find an excuse not to. You know, we have these brilliant ideas and they say stuck in our heads and we never do anything with them. And you actually did it. And you didn't, you know, you overcame the odds of your actors bailing on you and you just went for it. And I want you to know that that is so inspiring. Like at the heart of all this, you know, yes, I love the movies and I love what you did and I love the Tom Riley character. But I really appreciate you, Nigel, for what you did and what your story could mean for people who were looking to, to create also and to find an outlet for their talent and to actually just express themselves the way you have. Well, thank you. But what it comes down to is, I think you said excuses, or I forget the actual term you use. But people always come up with an excuse for failing to execute. Yeah. And there comes a point, now when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, that's okay. But when you start getting older, you realize you're still going to be going over those excuses when you're sitting on a front porch rocking in a chair at 80 years old. Yeah. So there comes a time when you just got to pull the trigger. And, hey, I tried submitting screenplays and stuff like that through Stage 32 and different different avenues that exist out there for people to try to get their stuff out there. And like when you talked about reverse engineering to make the film, this eventually came down to the point where I said, screw Hollywood. I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. And I'm essentially making a living at this now, shooting, shooting films in my own house that I place on Amazon for free. The only cost you have is you have to get closed captioning done which there's a company called Rev.com, which is R-E-V.com, and they charge you a dollar a minute. <laughs> so it cost me $90 to get bad, bad, closed action. Are you kidding and me? That's <laughs> So, and it's like, it, if you do stand-up comedy, yeah. if you, whatever you do, film it, if you have a film or you have an idea for a film, and you're not getting it done for a logistical reason, change that element that's preventing you from getting it done and do it. I actually have my phone numbers on the Facebook page. Yeah. And surprisingly, I don't get many calls on that, which is fine, uh, because I have had people email me a, a satellite image of my house saying, this does exist, huh? And <laughs> No, it's Legos. We just made it look like that. <laughs> but I had this this I would say these were two young people in their teenage years call me and I answered the phone. Hello. And they says, This Nigel? And I said, Who'd you call? They said, Nigel. And I said, Then I guess this is him. <laughs> so we got talking and they're talking about how much they love the film and all that and uh, and how they want to make a horror film. And I said, Well, you have f- phones, right? 
He said, yeah, with cameras in them? Yeah. I said, well, shoot a film. They'll do it this weekend. <laughs> I said, do it. I uh, mean, people, look, it doesn't have to be. Hey, I am a person that loves to get immersed in the theater experience when you see something shot in unbelievable high quality. Yeah. But you know, there's also things you can sit and tune into, and they're just so interesting that you'll watch them if they if they were shot on flashcards. Yeah, you know what was playing because and that's Bad Ben happened to turn out to be a film about an ordinary guy whose main focus and only focus was not losing everything on this house. <laughs> so he's walking around the house and he's kind of pissed, and at the same time he does get scared. And there's a scene in Bad or Bed. Where, because we embrace kind of the ridiculousness in the yeah. third film, but where I'm walking down the hallway and the stairs come down and whack me in the head, <laughs> yeah, and I fall flat on my back and I just get up and keep walking, yeah. That's an example of what kind of character Tom Riley is. Uh, listen, I can't even get through the scene where the one and you had a bunch of outtakes on it. I don't know how you did it. But when she's interviewing you and Batter Ben and she's like, you know, describe what happened to you last year. And your only takeaway from all the horrors you went through is I lost my fucking money. Right. That is well, just beautiful. <laughs> well, you see, you know what that we often draw from people in our lives. Yeah. In fact, most screenwriters, filmmakers, book writers tend to create characters based on people they know. Yeah. Well, I can guarantee you, I know plenty of people that are like that. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not in re reality, I'm not one of them. Yeah. But I, plenty of people who some, something tragic happens to somebody they know, and the only thing they worry about is how it's going to impact themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so he, this character's going through there, and he could, you know, he doesn't care that, like, something has risen out of hell and is attacking <laughs> in the world. He yeah. cares about he's going to lose his money. And actually, that's beautiful. Kind of, we, we, <laughs> We let me. I got to tell you, Tom Riley, who this character I played, actually has entertained me. There has been stuff that I see in there, and I did not realize when we were making the film, when I was making it, how it came across. And it, it, it sometimes I just sat there and I amazed myself because it was that entertaining. Well, that's why this, I hope. No, go ahead. Had, you go ahead. Well, I was, I was telling you, we alluded to this earlier about now the fourth film. Yeah. Uh, what has happened was it's, you know, you can only beat, uh, you, how much can you beat a dead horse? It's not going to move. <laughs> and I've done like three films now in this house. People are saying they want a fourth film. And you've said, and a lot of fans have said, and I find it very flattering that the star of these films is my character, Tom Riley. But there's a second star of all these films, and that is The House. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The House is a, a character of itself. So I said, because one of the things is I was, I was going to go on shooting other movies, other locations, and 
it's very difficult to find a place to use, a place that's fitting. I, I had like four places I went and saw, and they were they were like the asshole of a shithole. That's how, <laughs> that's how crappy these places were. Yeah. Terrible. I didn't want to shoot in any of them. Yeah. And so I, I said, you know what? We'll just – I'll get a different character and put them in this house. And just like the problem I had with Bad Ben, finding people to be available to participate is nearly impossible. As much as I love the staff of Steelmanville Road, they have other lives too. Yeah. They do other things. So being able to get them together was difficult. But they were very accommodating. And in the case of Badder Ben, um, Jackie and Matt and David, they were – you know, very flexible and accommodating also. But this week, when I decided to make a fourth film using the house, this was this is less than a week old. <laughs> this, I'm telling you here. So you yeah. kind of get exclusive. Oh, boy. List. Yes. Um, a week ago, I said, you know what? I'm going to do a fourth film in this house. And this is what it's going to be about. And I'm going to use this person, that person, this person, that person. Well, they're so busy. Uh, Matt and Jackie do these sketch comedy shows in Philadelphia, and David's a, a instructor at two different um, colleges, a screenwriting professor. Everybody's busy, yeah. and I want to get something out, and I want to get it out fast. Like I'm talking June, Memorial Day is what I'd like to do. So it turns out that I could not get the people I wanted together to make a fourth film. And I said, you know what? I'm going back to the well again, and this is going to be very similar to Bad Ben. And what has happened is, and I'll give you the premise of it if you want. Yeah. What happens is it opens where I'm, I'm standing outside holding up my phone, filming myself, and I said, you'll never guess where I am. And I turn around, and the house is behind me, and I said – the bank has been unable to sell this house. Nobody will put a bid on it. And they're blaming me for all the publicity I brought. Oh, I love that because it crosses over into real life. It almost makes it seem like these videos we've been watching are all part of the of the mythology. That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, the truth is I actually got a – I told you my phone numbers on the Facebook page. Yeah. Somebody called me and asked if the house was for sale. Get out of here. <laughs> no, this was about four months ago, and I said, no. I should have asked, well, how much? <laughs> you and really should have. In I, true I, Tom Riley form, you should have, all right, well, uh, what do you want for it? <laughs> but so this opens, this fourth film opens where it says, so the bank said, they're blaming me. So I said, fuck you, sue me. And I said, I don't have anything. But to my surprise, they said they pay me. To go back in and prove the house is clean. Oh, so, wow. Here we go. And it opens <laughs> where I go into the house and uh, everything's calm, and, but it's cold and I can't get the heat to come on. So I go down to where the heater is and I figure out that's probably this circuit breaker. And as I'm looking around the heater, behind it, I find this wrapped up package. And I bring it upstairs, 
and I open it up and inside is the creepiest looking doll you've ever seen. <laughs> and it basically, it has a cross attached to it. It's wrapped up in this canvas. And when I open it up on the canvas, there's like an ash mark, almost like the shroud of Turin. Okay. So I'm, I'm really trying to go to hell. Um, but, uh, <laughs> they unwrap this thing and here's this doll. And I said, oh, I said, well, the, the realtor, the bank's never going to see this footage. So I re- pick up the dial and the cloth and all, and I walk out and throw it in the trash can like I did with the Bible. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I walk back in the house. And when I walk back in the house, the doll's sitting in the chair. Uh, all right. I see where you're going with this. And, and what is so, this one going to be called? It's going to be called De- Dead Debbie. Dead Debbie. Okay. And, and, and when I walk down to the trash can because yeah. I think it's a second doll. Yeah. The trash can's tipped over and there's nothing in there. So that's when I realize this is going on. So uh, this this little bitch becomes real evil real fast. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. And uh, when do you, you know what the, the the niche is in this? What? Is it niche or niche? You know, I've heard it both ways, so whichever way you want to go with it, Nigel. The, the angle on this one, which makes it unique, Tom brings the doll in the house, and this doll, key, or it keeps moving around, and he can't find it. So what he does is he orders, you know those tile trackers, those little square things you attach to a wallet or a TV yeah, remote? Yeah, yeah, He gets one of them. And he also gets a tiny HD camera, which I I really bought this week when I decide to do this. And he attaches the camera to the doll and the tile to the doll so he can find it and keep track of it. And what makes this unique is in this film, you're going to see video from the, the doll's perspective. I see. Oh, yeah, that is unique. That is, that, you're going to see both. I mean, I'm still going around filming this. Yeah. But like, you want to see things where, you know, how creepy is it? Like, you ever feel like you're being watched? Yeah. Well, how creepy is it if whatever's watching you, if you've got their angle that they're looking at you? You're like, you're going to see, and I won't give away too much, but you're going to see a scene where the doll walks up to, and you're seeing it from as if it's the doll's eyes. Yeah. She walks up to a butcher block and she picks up a knife. I see. Oh, that's almost kind of reminiscent of John Carpenter's uh, Halloween, the first scene where you're looking through the eyes of the little boy and he grabs the knife. Right. That's and awesome. And then like, you'll, you'll see Tom standing there looking for the doll and he hits the tile tracker thing and he hears the beep, 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 and it's right behind him in the dark. Oh, that's great. You know, I, you know, I, I love that. I love what you cook up over there because it's all, you know, it's all homemade, homegrown. You're using things that are within your means and you find these very unique, creative little ways to actually, you know, unfurl the idea. So I can't, I, I'm assuming this one's also going to go up on Amazon, right? Yes. And the reason I come up with these ideas, Mario, is because I'm insane. <laughs> 
But you know what? I hope you give yourself credit because you know what it is? You're very self-deprecating and I love that about you. But I hope you know that what you're doing is in, you know, incredibly special. As I've, as I've already said, it's very inspiring. And even like, I got to be honest, at the end of the uh, the making of, when the, the way you closed it out with the shot of you, you know, closing out the house and heading out, your voice over there where you're basically thanking the fans and talking about what an unbelievable experience this whole thing has been for you. Like I put a lump in my throat and I really just want you to know that like, I'm just, I'm very inspired by you and I'm very happy to get your story out there. And I want to definitely promote Dead Debbie on revengeofthefans.com and here on the show. And we're going to write up a story to let the world know that it's coming. Um, And I hope that someone listening to this who perhaps has an idea for a film that they would like to make and they're just sitting on it, finding a million reasons to not do it. I hope they hear what you've said today and they go, you know what? Nigel did it. I'm going to go out and fucking do it. Do it. Do it. There's no excuses. And I got to tell you, I'm 52 years old now. Bad Ben came out right before my 51st birthday or 50th birthday. And in these past two years, I've had an amazing life. Yeah. I really have. Very fortunate. That's amazing. uh, What's happened for me. But these past two years have been the most special period in my entire life. And it comes down to this. It comes down to this was just allowing me to be me, my creativity. I didn't have to answer to anyone. Yeah. And. I just had a blast doing it. And you know what? I took a shot that are people going to like what I do? Well, you know what, Tom? Tom Riley, if they don't like it, they uh, it costs you $300. Yeah, exactly. And like, and as it turns out, this film's made over $40,000. Nice. Look at that. Oh, that's huge. That's huge. Well, you know what, Tom? I, I, I want to have you on again at some point when Dead Debbie is, is getting ready for release. Um, and I hope you'll agree to come back on because this has been a total pleasure to have you. And I'd be remiss if I didn't pass along a, a message from my wife, who when I told her I was speaking to you, she's like, well, please let him know that we're actors and we want to be in his next movie. <laughs> so if, if it seems like the ship has already, you know, left the station here for, for Dead Debbie. But, you know, w- next time you're working on a movie, drop me a line because I would totally just, I, I want to be a part of, the, uh, of a Nigel Bach production at some point. All right? Well, my, well, Two questions. Well, one answer and one question. I'll start with the question. Number one, why aren't you making your own shit already? What I, excuse do you use? You don't have to answer that. Yeah. You just absorb that later. Yeah. But the other statement about um, if I'll come back on the show, I will if I survive. Because let me tell you, <laughs> this dead Debbie is one evil little bitch. I love it. All right, Tom. Well, I hope I hope she lets you get back on the show, and I hope you make it through this grueling period. And uh, seriously, thank you so very much for coming on the show. And uh, that's it. Until next time, Nigel. Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. So how about that, huh? That's uh, that was a great conversation to have. And that question there, he asked me towards the end. I mean, that knocked me on my ass. Uh, there's no way I could have even tried to answer, even if I wanted to, because there really is no good reason for why I haven't just gone out and made a film. And if you're thinking about doing it, what's your excuse? So 
you know, I just, I love his story. I hope you guys enjoy that conversation. I hope you got something out of my ramblings about Superman prior to that. Um, that's just my experience, strength, and hope. And every week, I, you know, th- th- that is what the El Fanboy podcast is. Me just sharing with you what I love this week, what's on my mind this week as a fan, as a, uh, as a person who runs a site dedicated to movies. I just like being able to give you my two cents on what's going on out there. And whenever I get to shine a spotlight on someone like Nigel, I'm going to do that. And uh, maybe, just maybe, what Mr. Bach has done here will be enough to light a fire under me to actually create something for a goddamn change. Um, But either way, thank you for listening again this week. I will be back next week with episode 58 and perhaps another guest or two. And uh, until then, keep checking out revengeofthefans.com. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. And uh, that's it, babies. Until next week. Adios.